Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Hey, for those of you who were out of town the first week of spring break and thought you avoided me being here, surprise, I'm back. Uh, my name's Brett Ferguson. Uh, my wife Rachel and our three girls have been a part of Grace Point Church for over 12 years now. This is a part of our, our spiritual family here at Grace Point. Um, I also get the privilege of serving as, as one of your elders, and I'm, I'm thankful to have that honor, and I, I love our church. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, because you know that I am on a mission to have everybody here bring a copy of their physical Bible. So take that out. Open it up to the Gospel of Luke, and we are going to be... Um, in the back of Luke, Luke chapter 23 today is where we're going to find ourselves, um, And we're just going to jump right in today. Today is Palm Sunday. I'm going to begin with Palm Sunday. We're going to go to the crucifixion in a moment, but I want to begin today with Palm Sunday. It's the day on the Christian calendar where we recognize, as Mike read a few minutes ago, Jesus' triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem The Bible says that as Jesus was approaching, a huge crowd of people came out to where he was. In Luke 19, he describes it this way. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. This is kind of like um, when the Razorback basketball team wins a big game and people, crazy fans, like insane fans, go to the airport, right? And they wait for the team and they cheer for the team. Like that's what's happening here. The captain of the team is coming into town and everyone's excited. They had seen him heal leprosy with just a touch. They had seen the blind have their sight restored. They had seen the deaf been able to hear. People who could not walk could walk because of him. He commanded unclean spirits to leave people, and they obeyed him. He had stilled storms. He had walked on water. He had fed a crowd of people with just a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And as he entered Jerusalem, certainly there was a feeling among the crowd that there was nothing that would stop him, that with just a word, he could overthrow the Roman Empire and their kingdom would be restored. That's Palm Sunday. Fast forward just a few short days to Friday. And on Friday, Jesus, who was being treated like a king on Sunday, is now treated like a common criminal. The crowds who were cheering for him are now jeering for him. And instead of praising God for his miracles, we see them standing before Pilate chanting, for Jesus to be crucified. Matthew chapter 27 tells us the story that the crowds were around Pilate and he asked them, who do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. We talked about this last week. Pilate said to them, what will I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they said, crucify him. What evil has he done? And they kept shouting, and now they're yelling more and more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, he was about to start a riot. He took water and washed his hands from the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. And the people who were cheering Jesus on on Sunday now say, his blood will be on us and on our children. 
It goes beyond that. Even after this experience before Pilate, a tortured and battered Jesus then goes to the cross. There's no fans to be found among the crowds. He's subjected not only to physical torture and the crowds who cheered him now jeering and mocking and laughing at him. Even the people who were on the cross next to him are making fun of him. Matthew says this, at that time, two rebels were being crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who were passing by were speaking abusively to him, shaking their heads and saying, you were going to destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. The same way the chief priest, along with the scribes and the elders, so now we got the religious people in on it. They're mocking him and saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Goes on to say in verse 44 that even the rebels, even the other guys hanging on the cross are mocking Jesus. I mean, that's pretty bold on the way to the death sentence and mocking the person next to you. And so the Romans who have legal authority, they're mocking him. The religious leaders who have religious authority are mocking him. The crowds are mocking him. Even his fellow condemned criminals are mocking him. We went a long way from Sunday to Friday. And yet in the middle of this scene where God appears to be dead, where Jesus looks as defeated as a human can possibly look, we will find today a seed of faith, a miracle of faith. And we're going to learn about it today and learn about how can we have the kind of faith that shows up on Friday when it looks pretty dark and not just on Sunday when everything's going well. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. Let's read it together. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots and divided his garments among themselves. And as the people stood by watching, even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded, rebuking him and said, do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we receive what we deserve for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Of all the people that we've looked into over the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, Judas, one of his followers, Caiaphas, a religious leader, Pilate, a political leader, Barabbas, a fellow criminal. We've not seen anyone actually display faith in Jesus in these moments. Even his closest friends 
were scattered and hiding, one of them going to the extent of cursing to deny his involvement with Jesus. And yet somehow this criminal on the cross understands Jesus as Savior, while most people were looking towards Jesus as a rescuer. And that's what we want. We want Jesus to be our rescuer. And what we're going to see today is he didn't come to rescue, not in that sense. We'll talk more about this. But he actually came to be our Savior, which is much more than just rescuing us from the negative, dark, or challenging moments we have. He came to save our souls. Over the course of Jesus' ministry, we, we clearly see that there's kind of two types of faith of the people that follow him. We're going to call one of them Palm Sunday faith, since it's Palm Sunday and the people in the crowd provide a perfect illustration of this. Palm Sunday faith, we're going to call that faith that is really active in the light. When we can see God moving and God working, that faith gets built up and we're like, this is awesome. I don't want to leave this place. We see it all over in his ministry. Jesus was surrounded by crowds of people. Over 32 times in the Gospels are there verses that talk about the crowds of people following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, after he finishes his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds of people followed him. In Mark 5, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people and a man comes up to Jesus and says, will you come and heal my daughter? She's sick, she's at my house. And so Jesus starts to follow him and Mark says it this way, Jesus went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Matthew chapter 4 gives us a real clear picture of what was happening during Jesus' ministry. It says this, Jesus was going through all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel to the kingdom, healing every kind of sickness and disease among the people. And news about him spread throughout all of Syria. They brought to him all who were ill, all who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis to Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Hey, and this isn't a bad thing, might I add. Mike sometimes likes to throw in these like life principles in the middle of his talk. And, and I don't know that I'm wise enough to be someone that should be spewing out life principles, okay? But there is one that I'm pretty certain of, and that is this. Here's a life principle for you. When God is working, you need to press into that, right? You need to be around for that. If God is working in your family, then you need to keep doing the things you're doing to see God working in your family. If, if he's working in your small group, like don't miss your small group, like show up because God's doing something there. When we worship together as a church and God's working, like you got to be here, you got to press in. And I can look back on my life and I know a lot of you can too and see maybe four or five, six, just not just moments, but big frames of time where it just feels like God was like so real and so powerful and so working. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. We need to press into those moments. But faith that is only active in those moments, when you get to moments of darkness, because those are coming, can be a little wobbly, a little unsettled. We see this over and over in Jesus' ministry. We see it clearly in John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6 is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And here's what happened that day. John chapter 6 verse 2 says this, A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs with which he was performing on all those who were sick. There's a huge crowd of people. Jesus is worried about them. They don't have anything to eat. So he, he performs a crazy miracle, feeds 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. No one ever talks about the rest of John 6, the rest of the chapter, okay? It gets a little weird. Jesus starts talking about, hey, this is my body, like eat my bread. And, and he starts saying, like, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you, that kind of stuff. It gets a little strange. John 6, verse 66 ends with one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And it says this, as a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. What we see from the thief on the cross is a different kind of faith than just the Palm Sunday faith. We're going to call it Good Friday faith. And what is that? Friday faith is faith that is active and impactful even in life's darkest moments. Faith that's active and impactful even in the dark. And on Good Friday, when Jesus was hanging from a tree, broken, apparently defeated, the least likely person of all, a criminal who at one point was joining in the mocking, and something changed in those moments on the cross. A criminal who had not seen a miracle, who had not heard a great message, who knew nothing about the resurrection, he displays a tremendous amount of faith. Hey, if we were to go around this room this morning, go old school church and have testimony time, any of you ever grew up in a church that did testimony time? That was usually on Sunday nights, okay? That was always super awkward, right? But if we were just to like get the microphone out and just have people start telling stories of their journey with God, we would have some Palm Sunday stories in the room today. There would be marriages that have been restored We would hear about prayers answered for people struggling with fertility and then having a child. We would hear beautiful adoption stories in the room today. We would probably hear about medical miracles that doctors can't explain from people in the room today. We would hear about people who've been healed from substance abuse and addiction and mental health issues and gender identity confusion. We would hear some Sunday stories in the room today. You know what else we would hear? We'd hear some Friday stories in the room today. Marriages that never got healed and ended in brokenness. Prayers for a child that never got answered. Fertility still a reality. Childhood trauma that we can't understand, still carry the wounds from. Stories of adoptions gone bad and things that left us hurt and wounded. Medical situations where there was no miracle. We would hear people who are still struggling with substance abuse and addiction and mental health and gender identity. There's Sunday stories in this room today, and there's Friday stories in this room today. And what I would like us to leave here with is just a few things in place that when my Friday comes, I've built a resilient faith that is impactful and powerful in my life, even in the dark. It's the kind of faith that the Old Testament describes in the book of Habakkuk when the prophet writes these words, 
even if the fig tree does not blossom, even if there's no fruit on the vines and the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, even if the flock disappears from the fold and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like the deer's feet and I can walk on high places. It's the kind of faith I want, the kind of faith we need in our life today. So let's look at this criminal and let's see if we can learn how we build a resilient faith together. And the first thing is, if we're going to build a resilient faith, we have to begin by understanding our reality, recognizing our reality. The difference between the two thieves on the cross was one understood their reality and one simply did not. Um... I'm going to talk a little bit about our world today, and I, I just want you to know, I, I put this together a week and a half ago, and I had no idea that we find ourselves gathering on a Sunday after a, another shooting, a terrible, just tragic situation in Nashville, and, and of course the tornadoes that ripped through Little Rock, and I just want to say this, I, I can't even, I'm not even wise enough to give you a life principle, okay? So I am not wise enough or smart enough or do I understand like why suffering happens in our world completely. But I do think we can build some building blocks in that when we encounter a time of suffering into our life, we at least have some framework. When we have to deal with a week like we just dealt with this week, you know, I I dropped my kid off of school Wednesday and I'm watching a kid with tears in her eyes. You know, you, you just got to be, we have to have something in our life that says, when I don't understand what's happening in the world around me, I got to build a few building blocks of theology and just truth that helps me understand, why is this world like this? And the reality of the world that we live in is that this entire world is living under a sentence of condemnation. The thief on the cross recognized that. We'll see it in a moment. But let me just start with this, that there is a collective reality that we all are experiencing, and that is we live in a world. And what I mean by world, I mean a physical world, the physical creation that is broken and marred by sin. And we see this explained to us probably most clearly in the book of Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes this, I consider the present sufferings are not worthy with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then look at what he says about creation here. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Why? Because the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up until the present time. Hey, one of the reasons that there's suffering in our world today is because the actual physical creation, the cells in your body, the the objects that you touch, the ground that you walk on, everything you see today, it's all been impacted by sin. It's all marred. It's all broken. Paul described creation as being frustrated, subjected to, to to futility. He says that it's in bondage and decay and that it's groaning. 
And that's why when you go to the doctor and the, the news isn't good, right? I mean, one of the reasons for that, I can't answer the ultimate reason for that, but I know one of the reasons for that is like your body's just a part of a broken world. There was no LASIK procedures in the Garden of Eden. There was no oncologist in the Garden of Eden, right? Like that was a perfect environment and that's not the world we live in today. Our collective reality is we live in a world that's broken by sin And we'll get to more of this later, but the second step is there's a personal reality for all of us, and that is we are people who are broken by sin. So you have a physical creation broken by sin, and then within that creation, the people living there are also broken by sin. Romans chapter 8, after Paul talks about creation, he goes on to say this, we know the whole creation's been groaning in pains of childbirth up until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves Inside of us, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we're still groaning inwardly, waiting for our adoption because we know this sin that is in my life, this this sin that I have to deal with and fight against every single day, it's exhausting. And so we're groaning and we're waiting for a day when there is the our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body when that all goes away. And Romans tells us this extends to every single person. Every person you know. And every person who knows you knows someone broken by sin. Romans chapter 10, or 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one, there's not one person who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. They've all turned away and together have become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. Let me just say this. Hey, the absolute, I want to be clear, the worst consequence, the absolute worst consequence of our sin is that it breaks our relationship with God. Mike talked about this last week when he did the book and he put it between his hands. He said, I'm on one side of this and this sin's in the middle and like access denied, that's broken. But there is another consequence to this. It's not just that it breaks our relationship with God, but it breaks our relationship with other people. You can write this down. Sin never happens in a vacuum. Sin never happens in a vacuum. And so Adam and Eve's sin, it breaks not just them, but all of creation and all people. And so suffering happens when you have broken people living in a broken world. Creation itself is broken by sin. We have to live with that reality. Everyone is, you know is broken by sin. You have to live with that reality. Hey, let me tell you something. Your husband, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, your boss, even the pastor of your church, broken by sin. And guess what? When they sin, it doesn't just impact them and God. It impacts you. It impacts me. When I sin, my kids hurt. When I sin, my wife hurts. When I sin, that breaks other relationships in the world. And so we have to deal with this that personally, I'm broken by sin. And the thief hanging on the cross recognized that his suffering and some of our suffering, not all of it, but some of it is just the natural consequence of our sinful behavior. So how does he respond? Look at the difference between the two criminals' response. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were there hanging, who was hanging there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Never recognized his own brokenness, never recognized his own reality. 
But the other criminal responded, rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we are suffering justly. He recognized, I deserve what I'm getting in this moment because of what I've done. Palm Sunday kind of faith that sees Jesus primarily as a rescuer is often rooted in a core belief that we deserve better than what we're getting at the moment. We expect a rescue because we think we deserve a rescue, but Friday faith, the kind of faith displayed by this criminal on the cross, it is resilient because it starts with a recognition that I'm a sinner living in a world marred by sin and has completely given up our rights before God. It's the kind of faith that Job displayed when he said, I came into this world naked, I'm going to leave this world naked. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. So we're going to build resilient faith. There's going to be three parts to this. The first part is we've got to recognize our reality. Hey, we are broken people living in a broken world. That creates a lot of suffering, a lot of pain for us. And if we think we deserve better than that, right, we're like the other thief and not like the thief on the cross who recognizes, hey, some of this suffering is justly because I'm a broken person. I'm living in a broken world. The second thing is we need to recognize Jesus' righteousness. Recognize Jesus' righteousness. Luke chapter 23, verse 41 The criminal says, indeed, we're suffering justly, for we have received what we deserved for our crimes. But this man right here, he has done nothing wrong. You might want to underline that phrase. He has done nothing wrong. Because when the dark moments of your life come, one of the first things that Satan wants you to not say is this that God's done nothing wrong. One of the first things he will cause you to question is his goodness, his righteousness. And it's one of Satan's favorite ways to shake our faith is to say, hey, is God really good? When I was um, 23 years old, and a lot of you know the story, um, my dad was killed in a car wreck. It was super traumatic. We were on a highway in Kansas. Our family was there. We all witnessed it. We had to wait a long time for the paramedics and rescue people to arrive. My dad was a great man. My dad was a pastor of a church. My dad had integrity like I can't even hope to have in my life. Almost every single morning of my life, I saw my dad take his Bible, walk down the stairs to our house, and go in almost every morning of my life, and go into his study and spend time alone with God. A few weeks after my dad died, There was a massive car accident in Denver. A drunk driver had been driving around C-470, one of the um, uh, highways that encircled the city where we lived at the time, and he ran into a vehicle, and he killed, I I think there were five or six fatalities as a part of the wreck. But the drunk driver survived. And I just remember back to that time in my life and those dark moments after my dad died, thinking like, what kind of God lets that happen? 
This guy's a pastor of a church who loves his kids. This guy's out driving drunk, totally irresponsible. One dies, one lives like... And in my mind, this is where Satan was attacking me was, hey, I believed, I believed, I still believed in God. I believed God was in control. My question was, is God good? Is God good? Is God good? And I just want you to know if you're in that space today that that's okay. Like, it's okay to acknowledge that because you're not alone. Even John the Baptist had this moment in his life. John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, Jesus talks so much about how great, he said, Jesus said, among the men that were born of man, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first person when Jesus walks down the street, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you fast forward into John Baptist's life, he actually gets, ends up getting arrested. He actually, in one of the craziest stories of the Bible, ends up being beheaded and they serve, they, they bring his head out on a platter at a birthday party. Super dark, okay? Super dark. And in the middle of that, sometime in that moment between declaring Jesus as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world and being beheaded, we have this interaction between John and the Baptist and Jesus, and we find it in Matthew chapter 11. While he was in prison, John heard about the works of Christ, and he sent word to his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one, or should we look for someone else? I'm just going to pause right here. Can you imagine this, if you're John the Baptist? My impression is, is like, hey, he's in jail. This isn't all working out like he thought it was going to work out. He was talking about a kingdom and a king, and Jesus is coming, and now I'm in prison, and like I'm pretty committed to this. Like I've gone pretty far here, and he's taking a moment saying, he sends his disciples, he just said, are you real? Are you who I said you were? Are you who I thought you were? And let's look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Those who are blind receive sight. Those who are limp walk. Those who are with leprosy are cleansed. Those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And I love this. Blessed is any person who does not take offense at me. Jesus' response to John is, I'm real. I'm good. Trust me and my ways in your life. And blessed are you when you don't fall away because I don't do what you think I need to do at this moment. Building resilient faith. One, recognize our reality. Broken people living in a broken world. We can't move forward in relationship with Jesus until we recognize our brokenness. Number two, recognize his righteousness. He's perfect and he's good. And no matter what your circumstances are in your life today, around you in this moment. They might not say that he is good, but he has done nothing wrong. He's good. And then the last thing is this. If we're going to build resilient faith, we have to find our hope in him. And when I say in him, I mean the person of who he is, not what we think he might do. Look at the simple request by this criminal and the simple answer that Jesus gave him. Luke 23, 43. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly today, you will be with me. Underline that phrase right there. With me in paradise. 
you will be with me. Hey, look, if the world's broken by sin and Jesus is not a rescuer for a savior, you might be asking them, what is he offering? Like if he's not just going to take me out of the dark moments, if he's not just going to take away all the pain, if he's not just going to miraculously heal all of my needs, what is he offering me? And I want you to know what he's offering you today isn't, is bigger than a way out of the darkness. He's offering you himself in the middle of it. He never takes the thief off the cross. He says, you will be with me. And we call that, when we believe in that biblically, we call that hope. Biblical hope is a lot different than the way we use hope day to day. You're probably sitting there thinking, I hope the sermon's done in the next five minutes. We're working towards that, okay? But you don't know and you don't have it in control. Biblical hope is more like a deep-seated moral certainty that says, I know, I believe with everything in me in this person. And that, when we get to that place in our faith, that's a resilient faith that is alive and active on Fridays, not just on the Sundays of our life. God's called the God of hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in faith so that you will overflow with hope by the power of his spirit. In Psalms, we're told that Jesus takes pleasure in those who hope in him. Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those, fear, in those who fear him and in those who hope is, is in his steadfast love. Paul tells Timothy that hope in God is, is why we work so hard to pursue godliness in our life. 1 Timothy 4.10, for this end we toil and strive, or this is why we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Romans says, hope, this moral certainty that's deep inside of us is our source of joy even in difficult times. Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. But here's the thing about biblical hope. And here's the nuance to this. It's not just hoping in some action that God will take on our behalf. It's hoping in the person of who he is Over and over in the book of Psalms, just look at these layers of verses where it talks about hoping in the person of God. Psalm 25.3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Psalm 62.5, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Psalm 39.7, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Psalm 32, 31, 24, be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 42, 5, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. Can you say that about yourself today, that your hope isn't in the job? It's not in the house or the car or the bank account or making the team or being liked Maybe it's not even in what are more meaningful things like your health or your spouse or your kids. 
Can you say today, hey, my hope isn't in the gifts, it's in the giver. My hope isn't in the healing, it's in the healer. My hope isn't in the creation, it's in the creator. My hope isn't in the comfort, it's in the comforter. That's what biblical hope is like. And we have resilient faith when we're able to recognize our own sin, our own brokenness, the the long list of consequences for that, our need for a righteous Savior, and that person is Jesus. He is righteous and he is good no matter what your circumstances might communicate to you. And there is hope to be found, not in the rescuer, or not in the rescuing, but in the Savior of Jesus Christ. I'll end with this uh, story. In, um, in the year 2000, August 2000, I was a college student and um, our church had... Um, started an Indonesian congregation there in Denver. So there was a group of like Indonesian people that came and worshiped at our church. And I uh, met one of the leaders of that church. And, and um, most of these Indonesians still had family um, in Indonesia. And they started telling us a story about um, what their family was enduring in Indonesia. This is the year 2000. Um, and there was tremendous persecution happening on a tiny island in Indonesia called Ambon. Ambon Island in Indonesia. And so me and a friend, we went there um, to see because part of what was happening in Indonesia was the government was, was kind of letting this persecution happen and they weren't allowing any multinational organizations or relief organizations onto this island because there were, quite frankly, human rights violations being carried out by Indonesian soldiers um, on some of the people there. They didn't want anybody to see that. And so this Christian community in Ambon Island is being persecuted by um, what they told us at the time was like a jihad. Now keep in mind, this is 2001. This is a year before 9-11. Jihad's like on nobody's radar. Muslim extremism's on nobody's radar. So we go there. And as we're landing onto this island of Ambon, I look out the window of the plane and I see smoke rising from a church building that had been burnt out the night before. We went from, um, we went to this little village um, called Paso. And what we saw when we got there, as soon as we got off the plane, we went to this village called Paso. What we saw when we got there was mass chaos. There were hundreds of people that are fleeing out of the jungle into this village of Paso. They had come from a village about six miles away called Y. That village had been attacked the night before. And I'll never forget this image of a young mother carrying a baby who had died overnight into this crowd of people in Paso, along with other refugees that are coming from that area. So we stayed on Ambon for three days, just doing what we could, documenting it, showing, trying to tell people what was happening there, and then just relieving the needs. There's no, you know, like the Red Cross wasn't there, so we're just trying to buy rice and buy food and tarps and just help people try to live in this place where there's just this persecution happening. Our last night there, we stayed inside the city and we're in this kind of the upper level of this house. And um, they told us that, hey, when the sun goes down, is when, you know, the jihad kind of starts. And sure enough, that night, our last night there, the sun went down and we began to hear gunfire all around the city, explosions around the city. We didn't feel like we were in like immediate danger, but we packed our bags, we put our, you know, passports and all that stuff like on our body. We slept in our shoes that night. And then the craziest thing happens. In the middle of this war zone, 
a brass ensemble from the church down the street gathers and begins to play hymns. And they're hymns that, like, I recognize the tune to. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And I just think about that faith, that resilient faith of those people in that darkness. Listen, the reality of it is most of us will never experience anything like that. That's true. But you will experience some point in your life when your faith has to be more than just I'm here for the miracles and the goodness and the rescue. It's got to be a deep belief in who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Two levels of application this morning. First of all, some of you in this room on Palm Sunday might have never come to a time, place, or a reference point where you believed that Jesus was actually your Savior, your personal Savior. Hey, one of the great lessons from the thief on the cross is it's never too late to make that choice. If that's something you want to know more about today, I'll I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. But you can just simply pray a prayer in your heart and mind that says, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that you're good. I want to put my hope in you. Simple as that. A lot of us in this room have done something like that at some point in our life. An application for us today is this. Hey, there is this natural pull for us to continue to put our hope in our circumstances and in our situation and in a bunch of things that's not Jesus. Maybe today just settle in your heart and just be reminded, Father, our hope is in you and in you alone. We don't always understand all the pain and the suffering that's in this world. But it's hard to see. It affects our faith. It can weaken our faith. And so I pray, Father, for our church today that we would be a church of people with resilient Friday kind of faith that's living and active even in our darkest moments because our hope is in you and in you alone. Shall we pray? Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.